now the good fight with Yasha Monk. The United States, many countries around the world are now going through a historically novel, a historically unique experiment. How, for the first time in the history, they're trying to build deeply diverse democracies but actually treat their members as true equals. For a number of years now, I've been obsessed with thinking about and researching why this is so hard. What makes it so hard for diverse societies to get along? Why democratic institutions often inflame rather than reducing conflict? And most importantly, how we can succeed anyway? How we can build a vision for diverse democracies that most of their citizens would actually want to live in. Well, today I have exciting news. My book on the subject has just been published. It is called The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Now, today's conversation on the podcast is going to be a little bit unusual because it is actually featuring a conversation with the great Ravi Gupta, which was originally recorded for his wonderful podcast called The Lost Debate, interviewing me as the guest about the book and some of its major themes. I also have a second little surprise, which is that for the next weeks, instead of my usual spiel at the beginning of a podcast, I will be laying out the core arguments of some of the chapters in the book, giving you a sense of its contents. But I also have an ask of you. If you enjoy this podcast, if you listen regularly, please do me the favor of heading now to the website of your favorite bookstore or of your favorite online retailer and getting a copy of The Great Experiment. It would mean so much to me if you read this book. Or perhaps tweeted about it, put it on Facebook, emailed some of the people who you think might also be interested in this topic about it. I don't make requests of my listeners very often. When I publish a book, I kind of have to. I would be really, really grateful for you to read the book and for you to support the book. But now to Ravi Gupta interviewing me about The Great Experiment. All right, Yasha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Ravi. Well, Yasha, I love this book, and you start the book with this anecdote of going on German television, and you got yourself into uh, a little bit of a social media backlash. Explain what happened. Yeah, I started the book with a story of being misunderstood because, of course, the experience of writing a book is always that I'm going to be misunderstood, so it's sort of you know, <laughs> preemptive. Uh, yeah, so I um, was talking about my last book, The People versus Democracy, which is about the rise of populism and the threat it poses to democracy. And I went on you know, the biggest television show, news show in Germany, uh, and gave an interview about it, and you know, I was a little bit nervous. First question I was asked was, you know, what explains the rise <coughs> of populist candidates like Donald Trump and so on? And I said, look, it's got to do with the rise of the internet. It's got to do with economic stagnation, but it's also do to do with this great experiment that we're in today. Um, that for the first time we're trying to build these diverse democracies, and that causes some problems. It it it, it causes 
some genuine issues, but I think we're going to succeed. We're going to make it work. And that word experiment really triggered a lot of people on the far right because when they ha heard that word, they sort of pictured, you know, the chemistry teacher in high school who comes in and he like does an experiment where he exactly knows what the outcome is. Yes. And so they felt like, you know, I was admitting that I and Angela Merkel were like experimenting on the German people or something <laughs> like that. Was what I meant, of course, is is an experiment in the way that's familiar in American political language from from the founders, right? When 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 democracy was founded in the late 18th century, most attempts at self-government in the history of the world had gone really badly wrong. Uh, they did not know how it would work. They did not know whether it would work, but they realized that they needed to attempt this given their circumstances. It was an experiment in the sense that we didn't know what the outcome would be. Now, today, uh, you know, is the first time in the history of the world that we have a large number of ethnically and religiously diverse democracies that are trying to treat all of their citizens as genuine equals. We don't know whether it's going to work. We don't exactly know how to make it work, um, but we've ended up in this situation and we better make it work. Yeah. And that's the, that's the meaning of a great experiment, which is the title of my book. Yeah, and you define, the you know, you give a definition of experiment that you use for the purposes of the book, which you say is a course of action tentatively adopted without being sure of the outcome. And to your point, we don't have a lot of experience with diverse democracies working. And you point out that uh, a lot of the democracies that we hold up as having been successful are homogenous and that whenever there is a diverse society, it's either an empire or an autocracy or a monarchy. Is there an example of a diverse democracy that uh, has been working? And are we it? Is it really the right. United so States? I don't think that there's an example of a diverse democracy that works perfectly yeah. uh, where you can look at it and say there's no issues. Um, you know, you're asking, are we it? I mean, clearly there's big, serious problems and injustices in the United States today. But uh, yes, by comparison to most of our societies in the history of the world, I actually think that we're doing pretty well. And so, um, you know, a lot of people I speak to about this topic, um, they're very aware of our own shortcomings, and that's a good thing. Uh, but they perhaps haven't studied the history or looked at other countries to realize how much worse most diverse societies in the history of the world have ended up. So I want to do two things with, with this book. The first is to warn people that this is a really difficult thing to get right, that there's many pitfalls of which we should be aware, uh, that the stakes are really, really high, but also to make people a little bit more optimistic. Because I think when you look at the injustices today and you don't have that perspective, you might think, well, what's wrong with us? Why are we so terrible? Right. But when you look we at- We think of it as, a, we're, you know, we're Americans, we're, we're self-absorbed. We think this is a particularly American problem. Exactly. And so when you see those problems, you're like, well, there's something really wrong with us. But then when you compare to other times, to other places and realize this is just a really, really hard thing that we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And yes, we're still failing in certain respects, but we're also succeeding in other respects. And we're doing much better today than we did 50 years ago. We're doing vastly better today than we did 100 years ago. That then I think can give you the hope to build a vision for the kind of society we want to live in and to make sure that our society doesn't fall apart, but, but it actually thrives and succeeds. Well, let's let's start with the bad news first before we get to the hope, which I, I love, by the way, how hopeful this book is. I think there's a sort of genre of books over the past five years that have tried to explain polarization. I think I loved Ezra Klein's book, for mm -hmm. example, but he readily admits, you know, in this interview with Coates, he's kind of like, I don't really know what to do. And so when we come back around to it and listeners stay tuned, we're going to we're going to dive into some of the reasons why we should be concerned, but we're going to come out the other side where they think of 
highly specific, optimistic view you end the book with. But you also pepper the book with with that sort of optimism. But let's start with the pessimism here. You point out that diversity increases the risk of violence in certain circumstances. Explain that sort of body of work, like that history about how diversity has been for certain societies and countries a catalyst for violence. Yeah, well, you know, when you look at some of the greatest injustices in the history of the world, some of the most, you know, the darkest moments of humanity, they often involved conflict between different ethnic, religious, or other kinds of identity groups. Uh, this is true from, uh, you know, ancient times when the uh, Assyrians were expelled, when. Uh, you saw uh, Jews and Muslims being expelled from medieval Spain after the Reconquista uh, in the 20th century, the Holocaust, the genocide in Rwanda. Uh, so we see again and again that the most extreme forms of uh, human violence are often violence between these different identity groups. Um, and the hope might be that democratic institutions. We pride ourselves in being a democracy. I'm somebody who um, thinks of my role as being a defender of democracy and explainer of democracy. You might think democracy is going to solve this, uh, but it's not at all clear that that's the case. Most uh, democracies in history have defined themselves by their ethnic purity. Uh, that was true from the ancient Athenians to the ancient Romans to the celebrated uh, city-states of medieval Italy. Uh, but all the way down to newly liberated uh, countries in, in Africa and in Asia after, after colonialism. And some of the most celebrated examples of diverse societies working relatively well were actually empires. When you think mm -hmm. of Baghdad in uh, the sort of Middle Ages in the 9th century, the 11th century, when you think of Vienna in the 19th century. And I don't think that that's a coincidence because when you're in, a, in an empire, in a monarchy, um, I don't have any power and you don't have any power. And so if I see that, quote unquote, your group is growing more quickly than You're mine, it doesn't threaten me as immediately, right? Because I rely on the goodwill of the emperor and you rely on the goodwill of the emperor and there being more people in your group now doesn't really change that. A democracy inherently is a political system in which you're trying to build majorities, and so this feeling that my group is in the majority, but oh my God, there's these immigrants coming in, there's a demographic change happening, and suddenly that group might be in the majority, is a lot more threatening because of the nature of a political system. So not only is it hard to build diverse societies, it is in some ways especially hard to build diverse democracies. Well, and in part one of your book, you talk about that the, the idea of what it means to be part of a group is relatively easy to construct, almost frighteningly so. And you cite this uh, this study or series of studies from, I think his name is Henri Tajfel, is that mm -hmm. his name? Uh, explain this study, because this is baffling uh, and scary, how easy it is to create groups, uh, an in-group, out-group mentality and dynamic. Yeah, so... So Teifel, I actually don't know how to pronounce him. I was pronouncing Teifel, but you may well be right, but it's Tajfel. I think we're both guessing. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's go with Tajfel. I like the sound of that. You know, Tajfel is somebody who was deeply marked by the Holocaust, who lost a lot of family in it, who uh, was taken as a prisoner of war early on. And he watched the development of psychology after World War II, which was all about groups. It was all about how powerful groups are, how easily people can come to discriminate against the outgroup. 
And he started to ask himself, why is that? What is it about groups that makes us so willing to uh, do terrible things to members of other groups, as we'd just seen in World War II? Uh, and so he thought, look, here's a really smart way of getting at that question. Um, let me construct groups that are so silly, that are so devoid of meaning, that the members are not going to discriminate in favor of the in-group. And then I can sort of add characteristics to it bit by bit and see when do people start discriminating. That's the thing that makes groups tick. That's what makes them so dangerous, right? And so he got a bunch of teenagers from a school in Bristol in England into the lab. They are very similar to each other, middle-class white English boys. Um, and he showed them a sheet of paper with a lot of dots on it. And he said, how many dots do you estimate are on this sheet of paper? And so some said 100, some said 150. Uh, and they said, all right, well, some of you underestimated and some of you overestimated. So we're going to split you into the groups of underestimators and overestimators. And then he had them play a bunch of games where you have to give people points where they can redeem for money later on. And it turns out that the underestimated discriminated against the overestimators. And the overestimators discriminated against the underestimators, which surprised Tatchville, right? Because he wasn't trying to get them to discriminate against each other. He was trying to produce a group that was so silly that people wouldn't do that. So he's trying to show the opposite. Yeah, but it turns out that the moment you put people in groups, they discriminate against each other. I sometimes, you know, I lecture undergrads and I sometimes have people debate whether a hot dog is a sandwich or not. <laughs> and it turns out that my undergrads were, you know, enlightened people, progressive, they think they're the most tolerant people in the world, in some ways they are. Um, they start discriminating against each other on the basis of whether they think that a hot dog is or isn't a sandwich. Now, there's something really worrying about this, right? It shows that there's something deep in human nature uh, that, that makes us uh, groupish. Which is not us. hard to explain, right? From evolutionary perspective, you, I think you talk about chimpanzees, for example, which is a lot of that is good, right? Like, like part of what makes us innately um, attracted to groups is part of why we've survived as a species, right? Like group cooperation helps us, uh, you know, evolve, survive difficult circumstances, but there's a downside to it. Yeah, I mean, look at Ukraine today, right? I mean, people are making incredible sacrifices, risking their lives for for a, a common nation, for for a political ideal for uh, the hope of not being dominated by Vladimir Putin. And that also is a kind of groupishness, right? So it can have really positive sides, but it also can have these very dark sides. And so so for me, what it is to be groupish is one, that we have this instinct to favor the in-group and discriminate against the out-group, but two, that what we regard as the in-group really depends. Mm -hmm. Right In the States, we sometimes think that um, the fundamental division of American society is whites versus people of color, or it's uh, people who are black on one side and other people on the other, or however you want to split it. But that sort of, it's natural that our ethnic identity is the most fundamental thing that determines who you are. That's not true in history. What your fun most fundamental identity is really depends on, on the context. And somebody, for example, with one white and one black parent would be considered black in the United States, but they would be considered white or certainly not uh, fully black in, in, in most parts of Africa, right? And so where the boundaries lie really depends on our agency. And that, for me, is an important starting point when we think about how to build uh, diverse democracy, diverse societies, because we want to make sure that we encourage people to be true to their religious beliefs, To it's perfectly fine if they have some strong ethnic identity, but you also want them to think that we, we have something we share that goes beyond that. 
because otherwise they will always end up discriminating against each other in these ways. Yeah, it's this paradox because you don't want the world to be just this homogenous gray goo where there aren't such things as groups and cultures and you know identities. But at the same time, you don't want it to turn dark, right? Like it's fun to pick a sports team, for example, like you talk about this uh, in your book and how you kind of learned early on in your life that kind of, I think you were describing like kind of bucking, like at least one of your parents, I think is kind of like versed to groups, but you're just kind of like, oh, I realize I like groups. I realize this too, because I like most Americans were starting to get into Formula One and I just picked one team last year and I have no, no skin in the game. And it was it was amazing how quickly I was arguing with Max Verstappen fans in my no, life, right. even though I have no <laughs> idea what I'm talking about. And like, if you if you're not careful, it could get heated really fast, you know. And it's yeah, just yeah. that's silly. That's the example of over and underestimators. I have no reason to pick one person or the other. But and that's just sports, right? Never mind. Like, you know, you start to to go through some examples, and this is where you start to talk about well, what is the hope, right? You give a couple of examples. One is uh, two tribes that have wildly different dynamics on two different sides of the border in Africa. Explain that story and what what you and, and others have learned from that. Yeah, I think that's 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 one of the really striking real world examples of how the way we emphasize particular identities and we draw particular boundaries can end up really mattering. So uh, there are two tribes in southeastern Africa called the Chawas and the Chumbukas. Um, and they uh, live on both sides of an arbitrarily born border from the 19th century, sort of typical colonial border. Somebody with a ruler just sort of draws a line, uh, which today separates uh, Malawi and Zambia. And so uh, this researcher went to Malawi, started asking Chawas what they think about Tumbukas, about members of his other tribe. And they had very negative opinions. They said, look, these people, you know, they... Um, they dance the wrong way. They dance the wrong way. Their wedding rituals are off. The yeah. wedding rituals are off. They, you know, they like, they all live, I forget now, you know, they all live with, with, with a bride's family. That's really weird. They should obviously live with a groom's family after they get married. And they said, look, I would never marry somebody from that group. I would not uh, vote for one of them as a political candidate, you know. And when he went, you know, so it's about sad to see that Chawas have his prejudice against Tumbukas. What about Tumbukas? Well, it turns out Tumbukas Feel exactly the same, the same thing inverse, right? Like our dance is the right one, their dance is the wrong one. Obviously, people should live with a bride's family or with a groom's family. What what on earth are they thinking, right? Um, and so it would have been very easy to conclude that this is what uh, journalists like to call, you know, primordial hatred. You know, these people <laughs> have hated each other since forever. They're going to hate each other forever. There's nothing we can do about it. But then this research says, well, hang on a second. Let me go across the border to Zambia and see how people feel about each other there. And Malawi and Zambia are very similar. Again, this is an arbitrary border, right? But it turns out that he went to the first Chawa village and he asked them about Tumbukas. And they said, yeah, they're different from us. They have these different dances and they have some different customs, but I like them. They're good people. You know, I'd be happy to marry somebody from this group in principle. I, I would vote for one of the candidates for president. And he went to Tumbukas in Zambia. And same thing. They were really positive about Chawas. He said, well, what explains this, right? So he goes through a number of different explanations, different levels of economic development, different education. That's not it. What it is is politics. So in Malawi, it's a pretty small country. And Chawas and Tumbukas together are a large share of the population. And so they compete with each other for power. They each have a chance of winning the presidency. And so like you with a Formula One case, they're like, this is my team. You right. know, like I get invested in, in disliking the others. 
In in Zambia, it's it's a bigger country with a greater uh, ethnic variety, a greater number of tribes. And so actually, the Chaos Matumbukas are political allies who fight together against the tribes in uh, Western uh, Zambia, which are even more different from them. Mm. And so we see each other as similar, right? Yeah. So that's a really powerful example of, um, you don't have to erase the difference between these groups, right? Chaos and Tumbukas are different from each other on both sides of the border. But on one side, they're able to cooperate. And on the other side, they're not able to cooperate. And so for me, the big question about how do we sustain our democracy is, how do we get people to conceive of their identities in ways where they can be true to it, can be an important part of their identity, but they're able to to work with each other to cooperate rather than to see each other as enemies. So yeah, in, in a way then, the, the real enemy of our longevity as a democracy is zero-sum language and zero-sum politics, like framing the choice as like, we win, you lose, and trying to avoid, you know, trying to avoid framing most policy choices that way. Absolutely. So I'm worried, and this is perhaps where some of the listeners will start to disagree with me, but it's an important thing to to think through. I'm worried about the way we just habitually talk about whites and people of color in the United States. Yeah. I'm worried about... You call it like the most dangerous idea in America or something like that? Is yeah, like I think the, the demography most, is destiny argument? Yeah, one of the most dangerous ideas, uh, or perhaps the most dangerous idea today that both large parts of the left and large parts of the right agree on is this idea that America is about to become majority-minority. Right. That by 2045 or sometimes 2042, 2048, the projections vary a little bit. Uh, America is going to be majority-minority. Whites will be in the minority. And because whites tend to be more vote for Republicans in greater numbers and non-white uh, uh, groups tend to vote for uh, Democrats in greater numbers, that will somehow give Democrats this sort of natural advantage. Right. Now, look, I much prefer the current Democratic Party to the current Republican Party. This should be something that is enticing to me in some kind of way. But it's not. Right. Because I don't like the idea of walking down the street 20 years from now and being able to tell with a high degree of likelihood uh, who somebody's voting for by looking at the color of their skin. Right. Um, I know the ways in which this fear of demographic change fuels some dangerous triumphalism on the, li- on the left, uh, but also a lot of uh, panic and resentment uh, and uh, the so-called like discrimination theory, on the right. The right. great replacement fear, right? right? Which is what people misheard my interview as saying. Right? Well, it does feel like a cousin of what happens on the left, right? And people will hate me for saying this, but there's obviously differences. But the left, they seem to buy into the same premise, per your point, which yeah. is that this is inevitable and they have something to fear from it. Like, you know, and I, I'm i with you on, I would hope that we can move beyond that. Yeah, so, so the left is saying, hurrah, you know, in 20 years, finally, uh, you know, these rising groups will be in the majority and, you know, uh, they'll dominate politics and they'll dominate culture and all of the problems of America will be solved. And on the right, they're thinking, well, this group is coming and it's going to eclipse us and right. we're never going to win. There's a really interesting essay written in 2016 by Michael Anton, who was, you know, a sort of movement conservative who was making the case for why conservatives should vote for Trump. And he ended up being a, a senior advisor in Trump White House. And he's saying... Uh, you know, this election is like Flight 93, the flight to 9-11, which uh, uh, took off a little bit late. So the passengers knew what had happened to the other flights and they knew that they were doomed. And so they stormed the cockpit in an attempt to rest control of the plane. And in the ensuing scuffle, the plane crashed over a field in Pennsylvania. And so he said, 2016 is the Flight 93 election. We know that if we don't do anything, 
were doomed. Why? We're doomed because, I quote, of a ceaseless importation of third world foreigners huh. who hate the republic and who hate republicans. And so either we put Trump in charge now, perhaps he'll know how to fly the plane, perhaps he won't, perhaps he will all crash, but it's better than the alternative, which is certain doom. This is the kind wow. of panic and fear which this idea of demography being destiny uh, is fueling. Now look, an idea can be can have dangerous consequences in the world, but be, but, but be true, be right. 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 Nothing I've said is an empirical argument against it, but there's really good empirical arguments against thinking of America in those kinds of ways as well. You know, when you're talking about a majority-minority America, a lot of this is going to be mixed-race America. Right, like me. People that look like me. Yeah. yeah. A lot of this is Hispanics who actually, in key ways, think of themselves as white. Not all Hispanics, but a lot of Hispanics do. Most Hispanics, probably. A lot of this is people who are going to have spouses, who are going to have very close relatives uh, who are white. And so this idea that you can f understand American society as this, you know, these two monolithic blocks of whites and people of color, and that is the fundamental dividing line in America, thankfully, is not true. Real life is just more complicated than that. And we've seen that in the 2020 election. Right. So um, the only reason why Donald Trump was competitive in the 2020 election is that he made real advances in the share of the vote among basically every non-white group, including yeah. African-Americans, including Muslim Americans who are majority non-white, including a lot of Latinos. And we the saw only this in Virginia too, by the president, way. Yeah, and the, yeah. Virginia well, among you know, Asian-Americans, for example. You yeah, know. Yeah. yeah, and the only reason why uh, Biden is president is that he really improved his share of the white vote since 2016. Yeah, and so let's take a step back again and say before we get to the solutions because you have a you have so much to say about that and i think that's in in my opinion what really makes this an a plus book before we get there let's talk about the international context a little bit so we've talked about the history internationally of different types of regimes we have now modi in india we have bolsonaro we have orban uh, le pen right trump what unites all of these figures and what kind of similar tactics and language are they using to build their coalitions? Yeah, so look, in a way, it's tempting to say we don't have anything in common, right? You know, Donald Trump, as you may have noted, is not particularly fond of Muslims. Uh, Recep Erdogan, the president of Turkey, does not appear to be overly fond of anybody who's not a Muslim. Right. So we don't have that in common. Narendra Modi is a is a Hindu nationalist, right? They, right. they, they, they like different groups. Even economically, we don't necessarily have things in common. Some of these uh, populists are sort of pro-big business. Uh, some of them are, uh, like some Republicans now are sort of trying or pretending to be sort of for the, the native working class. Some of them, like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, are, you know, socialist or perhaps even communist, right? Really sort of hate big corporations and, and stand up for, for minority groups. So th they don't have uh, that in common necessarily either. But what unites them is a way of talking about politics which is based on two basic concepts. The first is anti-elitism, which is common in democracy and which lots of reasonable people do too. You used to work for Barack Obama, yeah. I think. Smart politics um, almost anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Obama was anti-elitist in many ways in his first campaign. Um, and, and that was fine. That's a legitimate form of politics. Um, that's a very strong strand of what they talk about. Um, but that in itself doesn't worry me. The thing that does worry me is the second strand, which is anti-pluralism. And what that means is that they say, I and I alone truly represent the people. Mm. Anybody who disagrees with me is by nature of that fact illegitimate. They're an enemy of a the people. They're a traitor. 
in, in 2008, a few days before the election, there was a town hall in which uh, somebody asked John McCain, uh, the candidate running against Obama, that look, Obama is 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 a Muslim and he's not a true patriot and 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 he's a terrible man and uh, if he wins, uh, I'm afraid for my country. And McCain, to his great credit, answered saying, "Look, obviously I want you to vote for me. Obviously I think I'm going to be the better president. That's why I'm running, right? But Obama is a decent man, and if he wins the election, you don't have to be afraid for your country. He's legitimate, right? I want you to vote for me. I'm a politician." But the people I have deep disagreements with, they're legitimate too. If they win, if they rule, that's fine as well. The denial of, of that, you can't imagine Trump saying that, right? Right. The denial of that, that is what defines uh, these dangerous authoritarian populists. Yeah, there's one other strand of it that I find interesting too, which is this was definitely true of BJP versus Congress. This was true of Bolsonaro. It was true of Trump. Is this seizing on corruption and the perception of corruption. And I guess this gets to the anti-elitism, right? Now, in, in almost all those cases, the corrupt regime, which in all those cases was corrupt in certain ways, uh, the Congress was laughably corrupt. Uh, the, you know, Brazil is you know, very stark as well. They were replaced by also corrupt people. Right. But there's a, there's a strand of that too. Like, would you almost treat that as like a third category of this or kind of just wrapped up in the anti-elitism? I think it's part of the anti-elitism and, and it's why the anti-elitism in itself doesn't worry me because in the Indian context, it is a pretty corrupt political system, right? Right. So the fact that people say, hey, Congress, which has mostly ruled the country for, you know, 70 years has a lot to, of corruption to answer for. Well, that's just true, sadly. Yeah. Right. But I've actually done a study of this, and what I found is that these populist candidates that run on anti-corruption mechanism uh, messages uh, make the countries more corrupt. Yeah, so Chavez is a great at, example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know, and th this is something that I feel in general about these candidates, right? Often they uh, talk about things that are real problems that that ordinary people really are pissed off about. Otherwise, they couldn't win elections on it. And you have to take the concerns, the pain points, the the, the anger that they express seriously. And, and and try to respond to it. But you also have to try and convince a majority of voters that the people who are talking about this often are doing so insincerely. That right. they don't really want to get rid of corruption. They want to be the ones in charge of corruption and perhaps making corruption worse. Um, so, so, so often the things they address are right, but they're not the right people to address it. In fact, they very often make things worse. Well, in talking about the world that we want, you talk about this interesting case in India in 92. It's actually from, I think, Uttar Pratesh, which is where my father's from, mm. the most Hindu area of India, pretty much. There is a There was a mosque that was destroyed by the precursors to the BJP, like the RSS or whatever. And then it led to a wave of violence where many Muslims were killed. I think there was like an infamous case in the train station. And you were able to look at this. I think there's some professor or researcher in Indiana who looked at, well, what can explain why certain parts of India erupted in violence and, and others didn't? And you use that as a jump off point to explain what we need in terms of societal design and attitude in order to get through some of this. Explain that. Yeah. So there was, you know, these moments when uh, ethnic tensions uh, or, or intercommunal tensions, as, as they tend to be called in Indian political discourse, were particularly high. And the, the destruction of this mosque uh, by a mob uh, 
led by many of the people who are now in power in India was the, the most extreme example. Um, uh, it led to terrible riots uh, around much of the country, um, including in, in the state that Narendra Modi ruled. Some cities experienced you know, a lot of people dying and other cities remained relatively peaceful at that moment and at other moments of high tension. And so a natural question to ask is why? What explains the difference? Um, and it turns out that it is uh, a particular kind of uh, set of connections that people had. So uh, uh, in a comparison of, of, of two of these cities, one that experienced a lot of these riots and the other that didn't, the one that experienced riots, there's a lot of what social scientists call social capital. So lots of people having associations and clubs and talking to each other and hanging out together and having trade unions and literature clubs and whatever else. And that tends to be a good thing. But they were separated between Muslims and Hindus. And so even though there was a relatively lively set of associations, none of them helped to bridge the divide between these different groups. And when there was a moment of crisis, rumors and, 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 and bad information uh, and hate could spread very strongly within those associations, and there was no counterbalance. Now, in the other city, the city that remained peaceful, they also had all kinds of associations and so on. But in those associations, they tended to be more mixed. And so there was more Hindus and Muslims in each of them. So in this moment of crisis, uh, people knew somebody they could trust. Uh, they said, look, this is not true. We don't believe this. We didn't do this. They could actually give credence to that. There was a much better mechanism for um, uh, showing that the rumors which were going around of somebody being lynched or something like that weren't in fact true, right? Um, and so this shows, I think, the importance of of today building societies, which again, people can be true to who they are. Nothing wrong at all with saying it's important to me to be a member of this or that cultural or ethnic or religious community. That's fine. But we also need institutions in society that emphasize what we have in common, that try to create commonality, that try to create spaces where people come to trust each other because that's the kind of thing that makes us resilient against the violence that diverse societies have fallen into so often, including tragically in India. Well, then I think the obvious follow-up is, does it concern you that so much of American society is becoming more polarized? Like, you know, we were, we were joking the other day that they're, they're even creating dating apps now for right-wing people and, and left-wing people and social, social media platforms specific to one or the other. And people are, at least the last time I remember reading this data, people are less and less likely to say they even have friends of different political persuasions. Are we heading in the wrong direction? So I think it depends on the kind of division we're talking about. When we're talking about political divisions, we're clearly getting worse. So there's a great question uh, where people ask, would you mind if your child marries a member of a different political party in the 1960s? And very few people mind it because the political parties weren't very different. Uh, yeah. Weren't that different, right? And we were so looking at data from 72, which basically showed that the parties were basically evenly split on the issue of abortion and actually more Republicans were pro-choice than Democrats. And you even had, you know, Ford, whose vice president was pro-choice and his wife was pro-choice, you know, and Joe Biden had voted, you know, the other way at that time or a few years later. So, yeah, 
So like the parties weren't that different. They weren't that different. And so, you know, well, you want to marry someone who's a rapper, whatever, you know, yeah. it's not that big of a difference. Today, the number has gone up hugely. I forget the exact numbers, but five or six fold. I mean, um, you know, a lot of Americans and I say, I don't want my child to marry one of them. They're bad people. Right. right? On the other hand, of course, uh, the division between uh, different ethnic and religious groups has actually gotten better. Yeah, like if you marry a so, Catholic or you marry somebody of a different race, those numbers are heading in the right direction. Probably, but I mean, right? 50 years ago, this is hard to fathom now. It seems sort of silly. It was a huge deal for somebody who's Irish to marry somebody who's Italian. Right. It was a huge deal for somebody who's Catholic to marry somebody who's who's Protestant or for members of different Protestant denominations to marry each other. And a huge majority of the United States population was opposed to interracial marriage. Today, uh, the number of people who are opposed to interracial marriage is down into the single digits. Um, actually, there's, interestingly, uh, uh, more people within ethnic minority communities who are opposed to interracial marriage than among white people. And you might say that's all social desirability bias, right? This is all people being secret racist and they, don't, they, they know not to tell a pollster that they don't like interracial marriage, but actually they're just as racist as they always were. Right. Well, thankfully, the numbers show that this is not the case. The number of interracial marriages has gone up very rapidly in the country. Uh, there used to be about one in 33 marriages that were interracial. Um, now we're up to one in six or one in seven. Wow. By the way, dating apps are, are a great mechanism for that. It turns out that the introduction of dating apps into particular markets increases the number of uh, inter-ethnic couples. There you go. Uh, so there's, there's some good things about them. Yeah, so some good things. <laughs> take that, um, take that, Johan Hari. Uh, the technology can be good. Um, we're we're kind of joking about like these apps and like, uh, you know, we have some conservative members of our staff and they're saying, you know, they don't, they don't need a left-wing dating app in New York because that's every dating app. You know, people are like, no Trump people apply. Uh, but you talk about this. Um, it's not just that people from the India example, it's not just that people mix it up, uh, so to speak, but they have to mix it up in the right ways and the conditions have to be right. Explain that. Like what what kind of conditions do we need in, in the ways that people interact for it to be effective? Yeah, so there's 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 another um, really interesting strand of research which is called intergroup contact theory, and so the basic idea is uh, this researcher Gordon Alport uh, sort of you know realized that he himself had prejudices against some groups. He doesn't say which group actually, and then working with uh, with refugees in World War Two um, in Boston. And having more contact with those groups, he suddenly realized, hang on a second, you know, I was wrong about them and actually the people who are much like me and so on. And so he thought, well, perhaps that is a general mechanism, right? Perhaps the more contact we have between groups, the more tolerant you're going to end up being, the more you end up identifying with them. And that's something that I think all of us have experienced in certain kinds of ways, right? When you think of friends of a particular ethnic or religious group, they just deepen your understanding of a group. It makes you sadder when something bad happens to a member of that group because it gives you a sort of personal in and personal empathy, right? But the subsequent research found that this is only true under certain circumstances. Um, so broadly speaking, it's true when you are in a context where the commonality is emphasized rather than what divides you. When you're in a context in which you uh, treat each other as equals, so being members of the same sports team really works, having a boss at work or having a subordinate at work who's from that group doesn't work. Um, doesn't work. Doesn't work because it's well. not equal. 
Bis not equal. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a really interesting bit about this in the late 40s or early 50s in the United States. They looked at, you know, at a moment, obviously, when the country was still very segregated, not just in the South, but also in the North in certain ways. And we looked at uh, white Americans who had co-workers who were black. And it turned out that if they had subordinates who were black, that didn't particularly improve their uh, opinions of African-Americans. This is why Mississippi isn't the, you know, isn't in the vanguard of equality. Exactly. But when they had co-workers who had a similar skill level to them, um, who were doing the same work, that really improved their their opinions of of African-Americans, right? And then the last condition is that the authorities sort of need to want you to get along, right? You need to be in a context where getting along is encouraged rather than discouraged. Mm. Uh, And that, I think, is important when we think about education, for example, when we think about how we want to build our society. It's great to have contact with each other, but we also need, when we're thinking about how to design education for, for kids in, in, in elementary schools, in middle schools, in, in high schools, you want to be honest about the state of the world, but you want to encourage them to feel like they're in it together. You want to encourage them to feel like equals. You want to encourage them to put forward the ways in which they can cooperate. Yeah, and this is obviously, you know, the the 800-pound gorilla in the room is the critical race theory debate in the United States. And, you know, I was a former school principal, and I've been wading into this debate over the past year. And I'll tell you kind of where I come down on this, Hmm. and I suspect it'll give us something to talk about. I think that some of these Republican proposals are banning like an accurate reading of our history, undoubtedly. Tennessee is a good example where the law, I think, says you can't teach something that makes white kids feel guilty about who they are. That seems to me obviously wrong. I imagine we agree on that. Yeah. Uh, well, it's it's wrong because um, sometimes we should all feel guilty about the history of our countries yes. or with our direct ancestors who, who did something or, or not. And it's obviously also bad because how should a teacher no predict what subjective. might or might not feel somebody yeah. guilty, right? And so you're in the in the realm of where you're banning something so so vague that it has a real real chilling effect. Um, right. You don't want teachers to be afraid of what they can or can't bring up in the classroom because somehow somebody will feel bad about it and then you know, they'll get into legal trouble. Uh, that obviously is, is really bad. Yeah, and then the second part is to get to this point of like what are the incentives of leaders is it's hard to ignore the bad faith going on here. Like this is, you know, people playing white identity politics in their own ways to try to push these bills. They're not interested in equality. They're throwing around MLK while they're also playing dog whistle politics. But I put all that to the side and say, those are all true. And I'm deeply skeptical of a lot of the people pushing this conversation. But at the same time, even, you know, I left the classroom in 2016. That was the last time I was superintendent. I was in the South. I was in Tennessee and Mississippi. There was a strain of curriculum that was becoming dominant at that time that did emphasize divisions amongst both students and staff and that did want students to really live immutable characteristics and view them as insurmountable, you know, where there would be you know, these kind of really sloppy lessons where kids would kind of identify their privilege really early. And it wasn't, there's a way that could be done really well, to be clear, but it wasn't being done really well. And and it was a full stop end of conversation. You should, you know, and this is why the feel bad for you language is interesting to me. Basically, they wanted white people to feel bad about who they are. And for them and then students of color to view these barriers between them as insurmountable. And there are, there are texts that have come out since then, like white fragility, that have become dominant 
uh, modes of thinking among huge swaths of the left and have infused our curriculum around the country. And that's where I'm different than a lot of progressives. As I say, those things, I wouldn't necessarily ban them. I just would argue against their use in schools. And if I, my kid were going to that school, I would show up to that school and respectfully try to get them to either balance it with counter theories or not teach it at all. Yeah, so um, you know, for me, one really clear example of this is something that has now become very common in elite private schools. Uh, it's for various legal reasons less common in public schools, which is to take kids, often eight, nine, ten-year-old kids, and split them into different groups Affinity on groups. the basis of their skin color. Now, look, it's one thing, right? Again, my vision of a society is philosophically liberal, which means that people can choose who to hang out with and how to lead their lives. Uh, kids are always a complicated case because they're not full adults. But, you know, if you're 15 and 16 in, in high school and you want to have a cultural club that is, uh, you know, for people from a particular group or who are interested in a particular thing, that may well be legitimate. That's a different thing. You're opting in yourself in a free way. Here we're talking about eight, nine, ten-year-old kids who turn up to school and their kids say, hey, Ravi, I, I know exactly your background. I guess you're saying you're mixed race, so let's assume you're, you know, your, your dad is Indian, your mom is white or something like that. No, you're Asian American. Right. And the most important thing about you is that you're the same as this kid from China and this kid from Vietnam right. and this half kid from world, whatever. By the way, half right. the world. Yeah. It's an absurd category. Yeah. Right. And then over there, there's going to be the African American kids, which also you know include people who actually come from very, very different backgrounds and so on. Over there, there's the Latino kids, perhaps the silliest of all categories, right? And that is the most important thing about you. And you should internalize it. That's what defines you. Now, if that is what comes to define you. If your parents teach you that, if over time you embrace that as an identity, that's fine. Should the most influential private schools in the country, the, 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 the schools where the fanciest people in the country send their kids to, be telling 80-year-olds authoritatively that that's what they should emphasize? I have my doubts. And then you obviously have a problem of what you do with the white kids. Right. Well, either you have them like... They all whites meeting. Well, like, yeah. right. So like either you have them just like not do an affinity group and they just get to hang out and play we while actually, the other kids... No, that, that seems like a bad solution. We have a, I'm going to pause you on this. Yeah. We once did a skit. We never aired it, but we did a skit. Joe is laughing over here, our producer. We did a skit where it was very much that. And at the end, all the white people were together... And they're like, well, what do we do now? Do we just go home? And then the boss is like, no, 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 no. we can't do that because that would be white privilege. And it's like a paralyzing moment where they're like, what the hell do we do with all the white people in this situation? And so I think often the, the solution ends up being you, you know, tell them about all the things that white people have done wrong in history and do try to make them feel bad for themselves. Now, look, whatever. Kids can feel bad about themselves. I'm, I'm less worried about that. Our solution in I'm, our skit, by the way, was to make them watch Roots. So it's actually oh, well, literally yeah, what you're describing right, is right. what we came up with. And so, you know, but I am very aware of the thing we talked about at the very beginning of, of, of this conversation, which is that the most fundamental human instinct is that you discriminate in favor of the in-group and against the out-group. I don't think that means that whites in the United States will always be uh, self-interested advocates of the racial interests of their own race because I think a lot of white people don't think of a race as the primary characteristic and perhaps they have an instinct sometimes they want to overrule it right, right? Um, but if you take these 8, 9, 10 year old kids and say hey the most defining characteristic of who you are is that you're white now go feel bad about yourself some might but a lot of them will say, look, if the most important thing about me is that I'm white, I'm going to fight for the interests of whites. And that's going to be my politics. Right. And that's a really dangerous road to go down.
Right. Especially if you don't give people an out. Like one of the things that I worry about is like this language, like, you know, this happens in every election. It happened after Virginia. You know, friends of mine in politics will be like, all right, it's time to blame white women. <laughs> and it's like there's this constant rush to create broad categories of people and ascribe negative characteristics to them. I even saw this last night. You know, we're recording this the day after the Oscars. <laughs> I'm seeing tweets from people like a friend of mine who's a representative from Michigan somehow found a way to blame white women for Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. And then I'm like, <laughs> I'm not a white woman if, if it's not obvious. But if I am a white woman and I'm constantly being blamed for these kinds of things, it's going to take a lot of discipline for me to not just look at other white women and be like, fuck all these other people. Like, they're they're not giving me an out. They're not giving me an opportunity to to be something other than my identity, you know, because they're telling me that because of who I am, I'm always going to be described this way, which is obviously a problem, you know? Yeah, if you think that the solution to, to the real injustices and, and the real problems we have in America today is, you know, to to engineer the discourse in such a way that exactly the right groups get hated, um, I, I think you're really barking up the wrong tree. Right. Um, I think the solution is to fight against hatred in all its forms and to try and build more of a sense of, of what we share, of what we have in common. And again, that doesn't mean that, um, you know, we're recording this in the middle of, of Chinatown. It's wonderful that we have things like Chinatowns right. in, 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 in the United States. Um, I'm not saying that people need to give up their identity. I'm not saying that they have to give up their culture. But we should build a political discourse in which we see the things that we share at the same time as we also obviously, um, you know, um, have different religious faiths, um, have have different cultural origins that we're proud of. That is all compatible. Uh, but this game of, you know, let's find which group is sort of appropriate to hate in the right way and that will somehow allow us to make political progress, that's very cynical and it's also very naive about how human psychology works. Well, let's talk about the ideal scenario here. We talked a little bit about it in terms of the group dynamics we want to encourage. How would you, like, what changes would you make to American society and politics to make that a reality? And, like, when you're rank ordering the most realistic to the least realistic, hmm. where starting with the most realistic, where are you? Well, I'm, I'm slightly going to dodge the question, I'll be honest about that, um, in that I actually think the most important reason why I'm optimistic about the future is not that I've come up with a great solution and I'm going to tell you what that solution is. And then if only you all listen to me, we can ride the ship. I think a lot of books have that kind of structure and it's never very convincing. Uh, the reason why I'm optimistic is that when I look at Twitter, I despair. Mm -hmm. When I look at a lot of the newspapers, I despair. When I look at the cable news shows, I definitely despair. Uh, but when I look at what's actually going on in society, I don't despair. America has become much more tolerant in the last decades. We have really rapid uh, socioeconomic progress of minority and immigrant groups in a way that's rarely appreciated by either le the left or the right. Uh, the best studies suggest that immigrants from uh, Central and South America, for example, are rising the socioeconomic ranks as rapidly as Irish and Italian Americans did a century ago, which shows that the right is wrong, that there's something, uh, the far right is wrong, that there's something somehow inferior about them. Uh, and by the way, it also shows that the left or parts of the left are wrong in thinking that our countries are so racist and so discriminatory that non-white people uh, don't have opportunity. Um, uh, thankfully, um, actually, uh, people have opportunity and we see that in the way in which the children, the grandchildren in particular, are rising uh, very rapidly. Now, there are also all kinds of sensible things 
uh, we can do in terms of how we think about our country, in terms of the kind of education we engage in, the kind of patriotism we embrace, the kinds of policies and acts of Congress that we should pass. Um, and that's important too. But fundamentally, my optimism comes from the developments that I already see happening in society. Right. Yeah. And when you talk about the policies, the one thing that always jumps out to me is national service because it gets at what you're talking about in terms of like the lesson from India, which is, you know, associations between people that cross these boundaries. It's, you know, it's why, you know, sports, for example, or military service uh, can create an, a a sort of empathy and common experience among people. Obviously, like the military service has the, the benefit of patriotism as well. And for me, if it's the one thing I could do, it would, because it, it also would help improve our education system, right? Where we have shortages of teachers, especially young teachers, is like give people multiple options. You can spend five years doing something like a Teach for America like experience that the government runs or military or something in medicine, et cetera. And that could be paired with this idea of forgiving student loan debt, which to me, I would hate for the pitch of student loan debt forgiveness to go by without us incentivizing something, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, I believe in many ways that it, that we can do it and we should do it. I have all sorts of problems with doing it for people who have the means. But like, if we're going to do it for everybody, let's then say, give us five years if you want to do that uh, of something that we need as a society. And let's actually deliberately construct it in a way that incentivizes people from different swaths of society to interact. Yeah, and by the way, you know, something like that, especially if the incentive was for student loan debt forgiveness, it might only reach a certain percentage of the population, right? Um, it's probably unrealistic to have every American have to do this and on sort of liberty grounds. I'm not sure that, that Yeah, you that just I make it the incentive, right? Yeah. Um, but if it reaches 10% of the graduates of elite colleges... That would make a huge difference to the country. Because one thing that I've noted, I'm an immigrant to this country. Um, I'm a proud new American. And one thing I've noticed is that the divisions we talk about a lot exist, but there's also other divisions that we talk about less and are less self-conscious of, and they're very pernicious too. So look, one of the reasons why I love this country is that it is incredibly diverse. And I have lots of friends and acquaintances of different geographic origin, different ethnic group, different religious beliefs. Virtually everybody I know in this country has gone to college. Virtually everybody I know has gone to an elite college. Virtually everybody has gone to grad school. And that is just the kind of bubble in which a lot of the influential people in this country, a lot of the people of a platform in this country live. Even if they grow up in a perfectly ordinary family, but they get into a great school at the age of 17 or 18. You know, they live on campus for the next four years, they go and make some money or uh, become creative or whatever it is they do in their 20s in New York or LA or the Bay Area or one of the major cities. And by the time that they're really influential 15, 20 years later, they have really lost touch with the rest of the society. And often they've started to look down on ordinary people. Yeah. They've started to think, you know, the average American is a bad person. They're ignorant and probably they're racist and probably they're bigoted. You know, we are so wonderful. Right? <laughs> and and I think that's 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 not good. So, you know, if this kind of national service actually makes people spend another year after college in a community that is unlike their own, or which challenges some of the preconceptions we might have about their own country, uh, that would be a very good thing, I think. Well, Yasha, we're running out of time. Tell us how we could find this book and uh, where we could find you and your work. I also know we haven't 
plug persuasion at all. So please tell us uh, about persuasion too, as you send us off. Thank you. Yeah, so the book is called The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. It's out by Penguin Press. You can find it in, in your local bookstore. You can find it um, on indie bookstores. You can find it on Amazon. Please read it. Please please tweet about it if you like it. I also run a podcast called The Good Fight in in which I have conversations with really interesting people about this set of topics. And uh, yeah, I founded and I run a magazine called Persuasion in which we try to fight for a philosophically liberal view of the world, try to make the case for what it would look like to live up more fully to the ideals of individual freedom of free speech, of a society in which we have meaningful choices about how we want to live our lives. So please subscribe to to get our emails as well. That's www.persuasion.community. Well, Yasha, uh, good luck with the launch. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.